we're on the second Sunday of a three-part series where we're exploring the temptations of Jesus. And he, he was tempted three times at the beginning of his ministry. And last week, Josh set the stage with the first temptation where Jesus was uh, tempted by Satan to turn stones into bread, which after 40 days of not eating would actually be tempting uh, for most people. But really what that temptation represented was the uh, the temptation and the urge, the compulsion many of us feel to prove ourselves, uh, to be out in the world and to prove who we really are. Um, and and so that's, that's a hard temptation to shake, and we're constantly confronted with it. Um, so if you haven't listened to that message from last week, or if you need to run back through it and take some more notes, I'd really encourage you to do that. It was really excellent, um, and that's on our website. Uh, but, but stepping back into the story here to continue with the second temptation, uh, it's important to re- remember the context because sometimes when we're reading scripture and especially when um, we're preaching or we're reading, sometimes we just step right into the story and, and it's important to like zoom out and understand everything that's going on. Um, I'm a context junkie. That's a phrase I used to describe myself. I like backstory. I want to know what's going on. Helps me understand a little bit better. And so just before Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness right before that. He's being commissioned for his ministry. He's being baptized at the Jordan River, and it is a big deal moment. So God is uh, really, really showing up. The Holy Spirit lands on his shoulder like a dove, and God speaks, and some who who are present, who knows how many, but some who are present, heard God say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so it's this powerful, thin place moment where God is coming down and descending to be among people and speaking. And and he's affirming the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And so at that point, we would expect that Jesus would probably hit the streets, right? There's a, a lot of people to save. There's demons to evict. There's diseases to heal. So let's get to work, right? You've been commissioned. Let's do this. Let's go. But that's not what happens. At this pinnacle moment of Jesus's ministry, where even John the Baptist is realizing that his entire life has led up to this moment. He's like, I have been, I was born for this. I was born for this moment where I am, this is the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This is the one that I was the voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord for this person. My whole life is led up to this moment. So everyone is having a big moment. There's all this momentum. And from that place, God's spirit leads Jesus where? Into the wilderness. 40 days, 40 nights, no food, all alone. And this does not sound like the ministry launch that we would expect or that, you know, in the um, the American evangelical industrial complex that we would arrange, right? Because if you're Jesus' PR agent, you're like, Jesus, Where are you going? We got all these interviews lined up. We got you on the Tonight Show. We got you doing hot takes. We got some hillside conferences lined up. We're going to do a viral TikTok dance. We got to get you out there, right? So where are you going? And Jesus is, of course, breaking the rules. At this moment where he could be visible, he could be powerful, he could go right into it, he goes straight into the wilderness. And honestly, it does feel, in my American mind, a little bit like a wasted opportunity, Why would Jesus go into the wilderness to be tempted? And so before we dive into the second temptation that he faces, let's understand why Jesus is there in the first place. Why is Jesus in the wilderness? 
Why does this matter? It's extremely important that Jesus went into the wilderness and experienced suffering and loneliness and temptation as part of his ministerial training. And really, in a lot of ways, this is his seminary. So why is this experience coming after commissioning? It's because Jesus is the Son of God. But being a human, so he spent his existence in heaven with God, all power, all authority, right? And he is used to, that's, that's his life, right? And obviously he's been a human for 30 years. But being a human and being able to sympathize with our experience and being a human in every way was crucial to Jesus' mission. It was crucial because he was going to take our place in death so that we could be restored to God, so that we could be saved from eternal separation. And his ability to fully identify with us is the crux of his mission. To be able to stand before God as he's doing right now and has been doing for 2,000 years as our high priest and advocate and someone who knows exactly what it feels like to be you, to be tempted. But the other very important aspect of this experience was not just that he was tempted. It wasn't just that he suffered because at that point now he's just like us. He's just a person. So the hinge is what he does when he's tempted. It's his response. Because in order to rewind the tape of human history, he has to face off against Satan exactly as Adam and Eve did. He has to face their temptations, but respond as they should have responded. If Jesus is going to restore humanity and bring human history full circle, then he has to go back to the beginning. He has to go back to the moment where Satan and human beings are face to face and there's an offer on the table. You can be like God. You can be relevant. You can be spectacular. You can be powerful. He had to go back to that moment and respond as Adam and Eve should have responded. And this was the ultimate test of Jesus as our substitute. This was him going through the preparation, the transformation to become as, as a, you know, there's an expensive theological word, our propitiation, our atonement, our substitute, our reconciliation done on our behalf. To stand in for us, he has to do, he has to do it right. There's a lot at stake here, isn't there? We might, as you think through all of the stories of Jesus' life, it looks like there's a lot of moments where there's a lot at stake. But this is that defining moment. And it comes immediately after his commissioning. And so these two things juxtaposed don't really make sense to our human mind, and yet they made perfect sense to God. Hebrews 4 summarizes Jesus' essential role here. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he was without sin. He did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So it's Jesus' ability 
to relate to us that makes him a powerful advocate, that enabled him to stand in for us when sin had separated us from God, and we were handed a death sentence at that point. If Jesus hadn't been able to do this for us, where would we be? It's his ability to relate to us that gives us confidence. So when we are praying, when we are being tempted, and we go before the throne of grace, how many of you go to God before or after you've done something wrong? How, how many of you feel confidence? Right? We don't really feel confidence, do we? And you could imagine the Hebrew people, this is written to the Hebrews. I just, this is just a little tiny aside here, okay? This is really, really powerful. I remember when I was reading this, I don't know, several years ago. And I, that the phrase, with confidence, stood out to me all of a sudden. I felt like the Holy Spirit just highlighted it. And I realized that the, the writer of Hebrews, who we're not exactly sure who it is, but they're writing to the Hebrew people, and approaching the throne of grace with confidence would not be an approach that the Hebrew people would have taken, right? Because if you remember the Holy of Holies, there was one priest who had to spend their entire year getting ready to go into the Holy of Holies. And as, as, as the stories that I've heard go, they would even like tie a rope around their foot because if that person was not holy enough, the holiness of God, they would just step into that space of holiness and they would be like incinerated, right? It wasn't God was like killing people. It was just the presence of, of sin and the human condition. When it encounters the holiness of God, it's spontaneous combustion. So one person every year going before God with terror and fear. And here in Hebrews, it's saying that because Jesus understands you, because he can relate, because he has been through these temptations, and because he responded differently, he was now standing before God. And when you go to God, you don't have a rope around your ankle. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence, boldly, so that you can receive help, so that you can receive mercy and grace. Isn't that amazing? Now, we don't have that history, right? Because most of us have grown up in, in our culture, in our background, so we don't really understand just how incredible it is to be able to walk up to God with boldness. But it is incredible, and it was not always the case. And so we don't need to run and hide when we are being tempted and we can feel that inner war inside of us. And it's like, oh, what am I going to do? I don't know. I don't know. And that in that moment, we can go boldly to him because he gets it. He knows how that feels. That temptation that you have in that moment, he knows how that feels. And that's why the wilderness period mattered so much. And it's so important for us to step into this magnitude and the gravity of what Jesus is enduring and how it's preparing him. And so, again, this week we're exploring all three of these temptations. And again, listen to Josh's if you haven't heard it, the temptation to be relevant. But we're exploring that second temptation today in Matthew 4. And so uh, right here in the story, we're brought into this scene where Satan is pulling out the stops, all the stops. He's taken Jesus to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. And together they're standing at this, at this point in the temple that actually drops straight into this valley. So it's not just like, it's overlooking the city at one point, but in a little historical research that I did, 
it just drops straight down. So, so it's below the normal level of the city. It goes way, way, way down. So it's very, very high. <clears throat> and we step into the story in Matthew 4, uh, verses 5 through 7. It says, Then the devil t- took him to the holy city and had him, Jesus, stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you realize how good Satan is at scripture? Do you know who knows scripture better than pretty much any of us? Satan. Will he use it against you? Yup. Yup, he will. Interesting, isn't it? Here's Satan with his scripture, and he's distorting it as part of the temptation. Wow. This is why we need the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God, right? We have to be grounded in those three things at all times. Otherwise, we can hear something that sounds like God, and even, even scripture itself, whoa, I feel the frailty in myself that I can respond to a temptation in the wrong way. It's easy, isn't it? So when we look at this particular temptation, honestly, my first reaction and many subsequent reactions was always like, okay, but like, why is that tempting? Like, I don't personally feel tempted to jump off of anything. I remember when I was um, at the Hancock Tower, and I think it's called something else now, but I promptly forgot it because I think it's like branded by some corporation, but it's the 95 floor uh, skyscraper in, in Chicago. Has anyone been there? Okay, a few of you. Yeah. So if you're on the 95th floor um, in, in the women's bathroom, there's this like just giant window because, you know, when you're up 95 floors, like no one's looking in. Um, gigantic window. Okay. Just it's the stalls and this window. And, you know, you're like stand there. And you're like, okay, right? And you're seeing there, and there's glass, it's very safe, but it's just like, boom, drop, right, in front of you, okay? So I'm not feeling in that moment, like, super tempted to, like, make any sudden movement. And I'm, again, I'm applying this to Jesus, I'm like, what's so tempting about this, right? Most of us would be like, you know, it's it's like, ask, you know, when someone says, what are you going to give up for Lent? And you're like, "Um, I don't know, vegetables, right? And it's like, uh, well, you weren't eating them anyway, so what is this, right? Uh, it feels like Satan's giving Jesus a pass. Like, this isn't really tempting, but, but of course, everything that's happening here is massively significant. So what is Satan getting at? As we recall, just before Jesus was led into the wilderness, he was baptized and he received affirmation from God. And what did God say about him? He said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And so the temptation to jump from this extremely high point, the highest point in the city, into the valley below and be saved by the angels is designed to get Jesus to prove who he is. It's me, the son of God. Yay, you can see me now, right? But it's also, and this one's important, to get Jesus to skip the pain and the suffering and go straight to the heroic ending. 
The angels came and saved him, and everyone can see it's visible throughout the city, and everybody knows that he's the hero. Satan is again saying he's putting that doubt. He does that, doesn't he? Do you remember how Adam and Eve, he, he distorted he distorted the word of God. He, he, he does that, right? He takes, he takes it and just twists it just a tiny bit. And so Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Because have you ever like had someone do that to you where they try to get you to, to prove yourself a little bit? Like if you, if you can do that, if you're strong, if you're emotionally intelligent, if you're actually that smart, if you're that capable, then do this, right? And you can feel it. You're like, oh, I just want to prove myself, right? If they tell you you can't do it, some of us in here are like, yes, I can. Watch me, right? And so he's, say, he's, he's, being, he's being told, prove who you are. Be saved from physical harm. Let the angels rescue you. If you jump, the angels got to show up, right? Everyone's going to see. And you're going to get fast-forwarded to hero status. You get to go around the problem, around the pain. No one's going to doubt you. If you take this offer, you won't have to suffer now or later, referring to Jesus' death. And you get to skip the hard part, the suffering that leads to transformation. And in Jesus' case, the suffering that leads to the salvation of the whole world, kind of a big deal. Skip the suffering, Jesus. Just jump, get caught, go straight to superstar. Skip the suffering, go straight to superstar. And maybe you can relate to this temptation. Again, probably not the jumping part, but we all want the shortcut to greatness. We all want to look like we have it all together, right? We, all, we want to look like we're the smartest one, we're the most reliable. Every, you know, Some of you out there, I know this was a big complex I had. Um, some people call it a savior complex. <clears throat> where you want to be like the friend that everyone can rely on. You want to be the hero. You want to be the rock. You want to be the one that everybody comes to. That was a big, big complex I had for a long time. We want to be visible. We want to be seen. We might even want to be worshipped. But we want to be hero in our own right. And we want to get there as fast as possible. We want all the shortcuts And Jesus' response counters this temptation. He responds by referencing Deuteronomy 6.16. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Why is that the right response? I mean, seriously, this whole thing just doesn't make sense to me at first glance. Like, why is do not put the Lord your God to the test the right response? So this Messianic Jewish center um, that's headquartered in Israel First Fruits of Zion, they wrote an article called The Second Temptation of Jesus, and it outlines the Jewish interpretation of what's happening here, which I think is really interesting. Um, It says, according to Jewish interpretation, to test the Lord implies demanding a miracle sign or miraculous act of provision. The rabbis interpret Deuteronomy 6.16 as a prohibition against exposing oneself to mortal danger with the expectation that God will perform a miracle to save one's life. Yeshua remained confident in the prophetic word he heard at the Jordan. He did not, he felt no need to prove it by testing the Lord. He didn't do signs, wonders, or magic tricks to wow the crowds or persuade people to believe in him. Had the master yielded to the temptation to reveal his messianic identity and power by invoking a divine untouchable status, 
through the public miracle of leaping from the temple parapet, he would not have been able to fulfill his true messianic destiny, suffering and death. Only after his submission to suffering and death did Yeshua receive the death-defying, immortal, and untouchable status which Satan urged him to seize. Jesus knew who he was. He knew that he was the son of God. He knew his mission was to save and restore humanity to God through his life, death, and resurrection. And he knew that when he did that, all power and authority would be his, that he would be known in heaven, that he would be known on earth. But the temptation was to skip the hard part. The mission, the calling, the path that led Jesus and all of us who follow him the path through the valley of the shadow of death. He could have taken the shortcut. Let's not forget that he's the son of God. He starts with God. He's returning to God. But God's calling on him depended on his obedience. His willingness to go through the pain, through the death, through the suffering, and through the human experience rather than around it, that was the calling. And if he had chosen to go around it, if he had chosen the shortcut, to be validated, to, to go straight to the hero status. We wouldn't be here today. Why would we be here? There would be no savior. There would be no reconciliation. There would be no hope, no life after death. Jesus' willingness to say yes to pain, to identify as fully human while also identifying as fully God, was that crucial moment at the beginning of his ministry. And his choice in this, his choice to reject the shortcut and enter into our human experience fully and to really be that atonement, that replacement, that choice mattered at the most cosmic level. He's resetting the human relationship with God, the possibility to go before God with confidence He's resetting so many things. And at that cosmic level, this matters so, so much. But it also matters at the atomic level, at the tiniest, tiniest, moment by moment, second by second, realities of our lives. He can relate to us. He can relate to our desire to be spectacular. He can relate to the desire to be the hero, the one that everybody relies on. He can relate to the desire to just go straight to the superstar status, to be known, to be famous, to be worshipped, to get the reward without the hard work, to just not have to keep trudging along through the hardship. Like, can I just get like an easy button? Can I just get an exit? Do you ever feel like that sometimes? Like, I just need, like, this is too hard. I don't want to keep doing this. I just, I, is there a shortcut? Good grief, right? That feeling, he relates to that. If you can relate to those feelings, those temptations, you're in good company. I can. The path that Jesus invites us into is that long, slow work, the painful path. He chooses to be among us, to minister and serve, not as a hero, but as a human. And he takes a really unique approach. He became one of us. So somebody should let Cheryl Crow know. You Gen Xers and old millennials will know what I mean. God became one of us. Do you remember this? Love that song. Some of you are singing in your head right now. You're welcome. It'll be there all day. It'll be in my head all day. 
This is his invitation to us to step into the dirt and the darkness with him and with each other, accepting hardships, accepting setbacks, accepting trials as an essential part of the process. I really hate to tell you that because, I mean, honestly, like, American Christianity is American. And it's all about, like, but we could microwave it, but we could get there faster. Let's make it more efficient. Your spiritual journey is not going to be efficient, y'all. It is very, very, very inefficient, isn't it? Doesn't it feel like a whole bunch of stuff is getting wasted? Your brilliance, for example, (laughs) right? You're like, I'm brilliant, and I am being very, very, very underutilized, right? Like, I know for me, I'm always thinking that. I'm like, oh my gosh, here's a space, here's a space, here's a thing I could do, right? It's an inefficient process because it's for our transformation. It's, it's, it's making us on the inside holy, right? The people who are the most holy and the most revered in the Hebrew times, Jesus called them a whitewashed tomb. He's like, you got, you're full of like spiders and dead stuff. Dang. If you're not doing that work of dying, to all this stuff and and entering into the hardship, then you just get to show up and you get to look like you have it together, maybe. But that, that work, it's an inside job. And most of it is underneath the ground. Most of it is invisible. You're not getting any awards for it. And that sucks. It's not fun. It's hardship. But when we choose to accept those trials, as part of our transformation, that is a very fundamental process for us. When we choose to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we find Jesus is already there. He already knows the path. He's not surprised by our reaction, what's happening inside of us, how we want to resist it. He's not surprised about where the path is going to lead us. And from that place of being willing to face hardship instead of avoiding it, we are empowered to be present with and serve others as Jesus did. So our inner transformation is the point, but it's also becoming one who doesn't need to be seen as the rock, doesn't need to be seen as the helper. Do you remember when um, Jesus was... Um, told by his, his friends that Lazarus was about to die. And he's like a few days away, and he doesn't like run. We're like, you know, I mean, that, I think you have to be the son of God to not do that. Like, you know, you ambulance mode right away. Here's my friend, he's dying. And Jesus is walking slowly and taking his time and being present with everyone along the way. And even when he gets there, knowing that he is going to call Lazarus out of the grave in like five minutes, he arrives and Mary and Martha are like, Jesus, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. You know what Jesus did? He's crying with them. What? He doesn't go, he doesn't go, no, 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 it's cool, it's cool, it's cool. I'm here. We're gonna do this resurrection thing. Everybody, let's, let's play the Eye of the Tiger soundtrack. Let's do this, right? He enters into the moment that they are in, knowing that this is for God's glory, and that in five minutes, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be so cool. They don't know what's coming, but he honors their grief. 
by stepping into that moment with them. And the only way you could do that is if you have gotten rid of all that desire to be the hero. The only way that you can step into the moment and be sad with someone, even if you know that maybe it's going to be okay on the other side, you can't do that and be fully present if you haven't already let go of the desire to get to that ending. In the Christian world, we do have a temptation to be the hero. In fact, it almost feels like that's what being a Christian is, like the most sacrificial, right? I'm giving up the most time, the most money, right? Or even like, this is a big eye roll for me, the competition of like, who's the biggest sinner? Oh my gosh. I'm the chief of sinners. No, I am. Oh my gosh, please. Jesus is not impressed, okay? The, the most whatever, okay? That sounds super American to me as well. The biggest, Texas-sized. Okay, no, no. But there's this temptation to be the hero and to be the one that has it figured out when in reality, oftentimes, we're just styrofoam. We're hollow. Yep. I've had those moments with God where I thought I was like super spiritual and then a whole bunch of stuff gets taken away. <sighs> Whew, that's not fun. I remember one, um, one year right after college, I was a student ministry intern on a college campus and I had goals. I had goals for God. I was going to put God to work. And so I started this really cool small group Okay, the small group was made up of women from all over the world. So China, Algeria, Japan, Brazil, Florida, <laughs> right? Florida, sometimes Florida feels like another country, does it? Even Florida, as far away as Florida. This group was so incredible. There was so much diversity. It was all women. It was amazing. Different religions, different perspectives. Oh my gosh. That kind of environment is like my favorite, when I'm like one person who is different than everybody else, and we're all different, we're all sharing our perspective. It was just so amazing. And so at that point, I thought, you know, I've got to be the hero. I'm the Christian. I'm, the, I'm on ministry staff, so I need to prove that like, you know, I don't know, Jesus meets all your needs or something. I think that's probably what I was thinking. And I remember, you know, being in my kitchen in, um, and, and, you know, doing all the food and organizing all the hosting questions and having everybody over. And I just thought I had to do everything. I remember, like, having this phrase, like, it feels like I have to be Walmart. You know, you can get your tires and your lettuce, right? It's like I can do everything for you. And I thought I had to be that person. And I remember I was in this class at the time for the internship, and they were talking about how when Jesus met the woman at the well, again, he knows where the conversation's going, but the first thing he says to her, knowing who she is, knowing um, you know, her history, and knowing that it, there was a lot there, right? There's a lot of baggage. And he says to her, can you get me a drink? He empowers her to do something for him before he totally transforms her life and makes her an evangelist to her city right? But he empowers her by taking a position of weakness when he could completely meet that need himself, right? He knows how to do it. He could like turn anything into water. He could just, he's a, you know, he's there. He could just do it. But he takes a position of weakness 
and he receives from her. And from the place of empowerment, she's able to answer Jesus's questions and see him for who he is and then be set back into her city. Pretty cool, huh? And when I heard that, I was like, oh, it just clicked. Receiving from people empowers them. It's not this like, oh, here I am to do everything for you. Aren't I so great? Don't I have, you know, all these things? And you know, I'm, I have a social work degree. Like my whole life, I'm trained to do everything, to do all the work for people. And this was a radical shift. And so I, in the second semester of that group, I started letting, you know, inviting the other women to host. I was like, do you want to host? How about you bring food from your culture, your culture, your, your culture? And oh my gosh, you guys, that was the coolest. It was way, way, way better when I let people serve me and serve each other rather than being the one that tried to do everything. It was so incredible. In his book, In the Name of Jesus, Henri Nouwen describes this phenomenon and the dissonance between how our culture views service and how Jesus invites us to live. Somehow, he says, we have come to believe that good leadership requires a safe distance from those we're called to lead. Medicine, psychiatry, social work, all offer us models in which service takes place in a one-way direction. Someone serves, someone else is being served, and be sure not to mix up the roles. But how can we lay down our life for those with whom we are not even allowed to enter into deep personal relationship? We are not the healers. We are not the reconcilers. We are not the givers of life. We are sinful, broken, vulnerable people who need as much care as anyone we care for. The mystery of ministry is not that we've been chosen to make our own limited, very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. Therefore, true ministry must be mutual. Jesus led us to this place of mutual service soaked in humility because he was served by others. He let friends and even strangers meet his needs because he wasn't a hero seeking glory. He was, he was lifting up people around him. He was empowering others. So how do we step into the space of mutual service instead of seeking to be the hero? I think Henri Nouwen's answer to this is really surprising. I, it was like, I'm turning the page. And I'm like, what's he going to say? Like, what's, he, what's, the, what, what's his recommendation for this, you know? And it feels like it's going to be, I don't know, like something really like energizing and practical. And I was like, oh, here's his, here's his answer. In this same book, he says the answer to allowing ourselves to step into these places of service with humility is the discipline of confession and forgiveness. <gasps> Uncomfortable. What discipline is required for the future leader to overcome the temptation of individual heroism? I would like to propose the discipline of confession and forgiveness. Confession and forgiveness are the concrete forms in which we sinful people love one another. These allow us to humbly recognize and accept our humanity, no matter our position, to be restored to each other, to demonstrate what mutual healing and service look like. They are the path that lead us through the pain we cause. And they give us the courage to acknowledge when others hurt us. But what's so important about is that this choice to practice these disciplines, they lead us Yes, through the valley of the shadow of death, but they lead us to the throne of grace where we can receive help and mercy, where we find that ever-present advocate who knows exactly what it feels like to be us. So if we put this into practice, let's do that together. 
My first question I'd like you to consider is what area in your life do you need to stop seeking a shortcut? A shortcut to greatness, ease, success, and instead walk in the path of humility. And I would say it's extra credit, but I don't want it to be extra credit. This needs to be happening, guys. Christians are weirdly bad at this. Who do you need to practice the discipline of confession and forgiveness with in order to practice your humility and receive God's grace? So, in wrapping up, Pastor Ben next week is going to be concluding with Jesus' third and final temptation. As we'll be celebrating Easter together at the time, so I want to invite you back because these rituals within the calendar year, the Christian calendar, is so important for us to gather and, and recognize them and, and celebrate and be transformed together. So we are going to be um, celebrating communion right now. We're going to be preparing for that, and I want to invite the communion servers and the worship team up here. Um, just following communion, we'll be welcoming our kiddos in. They'll be doing a Palm Sunday triumphal entry. And so we encourage you to cheer them on. We encourage you to celebrate their presence with us. Um, they'll be coming in and they'll be coming around and they'll be landing with family. So be looking for your kiddo if they're in elementary, uh, the elementary classrooms, be looking for them because they'll be coming through and looking for you. Um, we are saying the Lord's Prayer together each week. And so I invite you to stand with me as we conclude and go into worship and communion. <clears throat> this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.